Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. The next one that I want to cover is package-config. Package-config is a very interesting little piece of software, and it dates back at least, I think, the earliest version I was able to find on their servers was 2003, I believe. It is currently being maintained by, pack uh, by freedesktop.org. So you can go to freedesktop.org slash wiki slash software slash package or pkg dash config and read a little bit more about the the program and if i look into slash var slash log slash packages slash pkg dash config i see that this package contains some profile.d um, configurations like uh, package config.csh and package config-sh which are just things that your your shell is going to inherit when you launch a new shell it's a feature of Slackware, or it's not a feature of Slackware, but it's it's a it, that's the method that Slackware sort of provides for modular um, configurations for your shell settings. I mean, it's pretty common. You'll you'll see it all over the place. I'm just saying on Slackware, it's also here. Uh, and then there's user bin package config, user bin x86 underscore 64 dash Slackware dash Linux dash GNU dash package config. So. It's not a whole lot of information. There's um, or, or installable deliverables. There are there's a man page, and then there's also a set of macros, M4 macros, which you know what those are. We've talked about those with AutoTools and AutoConf and all those other AC Local, all those applications. So M4 macros are not foreign. We understand what that does. Do we understand what package config does? Well. Um, because I was able to find version 0.3.0, I mean it's not hard to find it. You go to the you go to their release server and you go to the earliest one you can find, which I, I believe, unless I missed one, is package config-0.3.0. The original software package config was written in shell. So this is kind of a great demonstration of really the advantages to my mind of writing things in shell. It's it's a simple language and even if you don't exactly know how to write it yourself, if you are a Linux user, if you're using a terminal, you can kind of understand, you know, you can you can parse it. Kind of understand what's going on. And so this is a really interesting way to to discover exactly what package-config does. Doing a, an, an L or a less on, on this shell script, you'll find that, and this is, you know, again, this is the original package-config, so this isn't the one that's installed today on Slackware. This is, we're going back to 2003 or whatever it is, 0.3.0, and just kind of reading over this, just just to get an idea of what the intent was. Top of the file defines prefix as, e prefix equals slash user slash local. Exec prefix equals same as prefix. PC default path is exec prefix libexec package config. And then there's a cleanup step, which I'm going to skip. Quite a long function, and uh, it's just cleanup, so it's not going to tell us a whole lot. Find underscore config file. For PC underscore dir, so they, they prepend PC underscore before their variables to identify which variables are specific to this script. For PC underscore dir in PC underscore path do um, if PC underscore dir PC underscore package dot PC exists and is a file then source PC underscore dir PC underscore package dot PC. That's kind of that that's a that's a really big part of it right there is when you invoked the original package config it searched through a directory that was preset for, for uh, looking for .pc files and it it tried to discover if there was a 
.pc file for whatever pc dot, uh, underscore package is. And, and those are variables that, you know, in this function at this point in the program have not yet been defined. But whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. If it exists, then it sources that file. It, it imports the, the variables and the functions contained in whatever that file is. A little bit later in the script, you'll find the part of, uh, of, the, of the code where pc underscore package is defined. It's actually um, an iteration of pc underscore pkgs, so a group of packages that might be, be required for some compilation or something. But... But essentially, I mean, it's a it's a really nicely written script. If you get a chance and you're curious, you should go read it. It's a it, it has a lot of really cool, um, I guess, technically basic principles of you know, kind of like how to iterate over things and how to shuffle variables around and shuffle data around, shifting data around. It, it's it's got a lot of good stuff in it. So give it a read at some point if you want to see again, just kind of the early example of this, the the early intent of package config i think that the earliest version of it kind of sums it up really well now it was since written rewritten in c and i think they said it was rewritten yet again in c recently or something like that i mean i don't know how recently it is but but yeah so it's, it's been rewritten and rewritten a couple of times and you can certainly go read that source code as well i just thought it would be interesting to go back and read the sort of the, where it all started just to kind of see if we could really pare it down. And I think th I think that does it. Like, line... Well, I just have it in less, so I don't have a, a line number here. Most has line numbers, though. Um, so it's it's about line um, 49. 49 in the original file. That kind of... From 49 to um, about approximately 55 kind of sums up what package config does. So if you didn't catch what it's doing... Um, that's fine because um, sometimes referencing, for instance, random files ending in .pc isn't very descriptive. So let's go find a .pc file to really figure out. Now, now we know, okay, package config, it looks at PC files. Well, what the heck is a PC file? We don't know that yet. So let's do a find in var log packages for a type is f, as in file, um, and then we'll do a dash exec grep quote... No, actually, I don't need to do the quote. I'll just do backslash dot PC and then the dollar sign and then backslash semicolon. Oh, wait, I forgot the curly brace. Dollar sign space, curly brace, curly brace, backslash colon. There's a bunch of PC files in here. Um, so I'm just going to randomly take the last one that came up right before I hit control C. There's like something about like, something like 1,600, almost 1,700 files uh, PC files on this on this system. Okay, this is a pretty good example actually. So this is liblisma, and uh, it says the author is last Colin. This file has been put into the public domain. You can do whatever you want with this file. It's a PC file, and it is uh, prefix equals slash user exec prefix equals slash user libdir equals slash user lib include dir equals slash user slash include name liblisma. Description, general purpose data compression library. URL, and then it gives a URL. Version, 5.2.2. C flags, dash capital I, dollar sign, curly brace, include dir, close curly brace. Libs, colon, dash capital L, dollar sign, curly brace, lib dir, close curly brace, space, dash LLZMA. Libs.private, colon, dash P thread. That's the contents of the package config file. So what we'll do now, now that we've seen... And, and you can kind of, I think you can probably start to see sort of what, what the purpose of this is. I mean, combined with our knowledge of what the original script did and then what a PC file looks like when you get one, I think it's kind of becoming relatively clear as to how all of this works. But I don't feel like it's clear yet. And if it's not clear, that's it's, don't worry about it. I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yet more about this. But if it is uh, what is not clear yet from from what I've from what I've looked at is where these things come from. So I have just downloaded 5.25 for Lisma, which is xz-5.2.5.tar.xz, and I'm going to do a find in this directory in the, the archive that I just downloaded for type f-name 
quote asterisk dot pc and there's nothing here so now I'm going to do a dot slash configure and then a make and then I'm going to do a find type f name pc again and what do you know now in dot slash source slash liblisma slash liblisma dot pc this file exists so um really quick like look at this one this is so this is a brand new one has the same header has the same prefix exec pre no it has a different prefix sorry prefix equals slash user slash local exec prefix equals slash user local libdir slash user local lib include dir user local include liblisma and so on so what is clearly what what's going on here is that your system in its i guess its its freshest state would have uh, probably a minimal number of pc files of package config files it would probably have some because software comes with pc files as we've now just demonstrated from the xz uh, utils package but what happens is that your your system in its native state has a couple of pc files and those pc files those package config files reference their its metadata about the software with which they were delivered and so when you launch a compiler if a package config file a .pc file exists for something that that package needs while you're compiling it it is able to invoke package config and find out information about the software that's installed on your system. Where does that information, that metadata come from? Well, it gets written, it gets compiled into a .pc file when you yourself compile something. So if I do a make clean in this liblisma directory, in this liblisma, yeah, archive, and then do a dot slash configure, let's do prefix equals slash opt. So now I've, I've configured the software differently than I had before. The prefix should be completely different when I'm done here. And then I'll do a make-j6 to try to really hurry this along. And then I'll do a find for a PC file. There it is again. So I'll do a less on that PC file. And what do you know? Prefix equals slash opt. Exec prefix equals slash, slash opt. Libdir equals slash opt slash lib. Includedir equals slash opt slash include. So if I were to install this software now, any file, any any other software that ever needs to know about how I personally installed liblisma, it could find that out. How would it find that out? It would invoke package config, import any of the variables that it offers, and then it it understands where and and how liblisma has been installed on this specific system. But that's not all it knows. It knows more. It knows, for instance, important C flags and the libraries that Liblisma provides and libraries that Liblisma uses. You can see all of this happening with the package config command itself, like if you just use it directly. So if you do package pkg-config-libs, for instance, and then type in Liblisma, that might not work because it might need a version. No, it worked. So uh, package config dash dash libs liblisma returns dash llzma. So it knows the library, the, the compiler flag dash l what, lisma in this case. It knows that compiler uh, option because package config tells it, or, the, or rather the package config file tells it what that is. And you can do that with a lot of different packages. Now you have to know the package names and, and so on, but... Um, you can do that. So if I do, for instance, package config soxer, S-O-X-R, it's a, uh, it's a audio conversion, oops, I forgot, dash libs, soxer, audio conversion library, dash L, S-O-X-R. Okay, well, what about, I don't know, the, the, the version? What, 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 what version of liblisma do we have installed? Well, we can find that out. Con package config dash dash mod version. It says mod as in module. I don't know why exactly they call it a module, but they do. And so dash dash mod version, and then let's say liblisma 5.2.2 is what it returns. And I happen to know that that's correct because uh, I just saw the file in var log packages. What about for Soxer 0.1.3? Sounds right to me. And so on. You could you could come up with all kinds of things and query all kinds of packages in, in package config and get all kinds of information about it. You could also do a, just a dash dash list all. 
so that you know sort of what you're dealing with. So if you do a package dash config space dash dash list all, and then I'm going to pipe it to most because that is going to be a lot of packages. And it's not like every, every, it, it doesn't correlate to, for instance, literal Slackware packages. It, it is obviously, as as we've seen from the X to Z utils, it gets generated, a PC, a .pc file may or may not get generated by, by software that you install or that, that you compile and install. So generally speaking, I think it's, it's kind of thing, you know, it's, it's the software that, that other things would want to hook into. So if, if, if you've got a library that other, other software is going to use, then providing package a package config configuration file is is quite helpful because then you can you can tell it you know other things will be able to discover how something was installed whereas if it's kind of a, a self-standing you know bash script like trashy then it, maybe it's not really that important to do a package config against so yeah there's there's all kinds of stuff uh, with with .pc files I think I've kind of explained what it's for pretty effectively. I don't really know what else to say about this. If you do the package-config-list-all, you'll see everything on your system with a package-config file, and then you can query it with things like dash-dash-libs, or dash-dash-mod version, or dash-dash-c-flags, and so on. So the idea, obviously, really isn't for you to query it. I mean, not really. The The idea is for your compiler to be able to query it. And from from the information contained in those files, your your compiler is able to auto-discover the location of important libraries or verify the, the, uh, the version of a library to, to determine whether the one that you have is sufficient. Because um, a a, a package config file can include requirements as well. So in a way, package config is almost like I don't know part of a spec file for an RPM or or the um, oh man I forget what it's called on on the .deb. It's been such a long time. But anyway, it, it's it's a little bit of a specification file in a way, but it's also it's also sort of like metadata. So I guess it's it's somewhere in between, you know, a recipe and metadata. That's package config. It went a lot faster actually than I'd anticipated. Oh, it didn't go fast. It's been like 20 minutes. Okay. Well, it didn't go a lot faster than I'd anticipated. It felt faster than I'd anticipated. Okay. Let's let's really quickly tackle pmake. Pmake is parallel make apparently, and it is a well according to the the description at the top of the varlog packages entry. This is pmake, a parallel make program originally written for the sprite operating system ported from BSD Unix. This may be useful if you're going to port software with make files designed for BSD. I did a fair amount of research on this one. Um, I've never knowingly used pmake before, although having said that, I believe that sometimes systems just symlink make, the the make command, to something else. So sometimes it's hard to determine whether you've actually used one version or another, because as far as you know, you've just typed in foo, and foo actually symlinked to, I don't know, bfoo or pfoo or gfoo. Anyway, pmake as far as I know, I've never used it. I have used bmake, as in BSD, bmake, and I've used make, GNU make, pmake, not not as far as I know. So I did some research on it to try, try to kind of figure out where the lineage sort of is, what that looks like, and it was pretty difficult, actually, to determine definitively. But what I do get is that BSD has their make, and Linux, ha or the GNU, I should say, has has its make. And Linux typically just defaults over to the GNU make, and so a lot of software developed for Linux anticipates a GNU-style setup. And when I say it's a GNU-style setup, it means that you you generally have a, a make file, and maybe there are some other make files elsewhere, but it, it all happens sort of in sequence. There's a make file, and maybe that triggers another make file or something like that, but it's it's all kind of it, it builds on on one another, as far as I can tell. Whereas pmake, one of the key features to pmake, but also to other BSD makes, is that there are um, snippet files, if you will. I'm calling them snippet files. They're they're actually uh, on on BSD. You'll find them as a .mk file, and .mk files are 
like sort of miniature or, or pieces of a larger make structure. And pmake, for instance, can run a bunch of uh, processes sort of within the same shell in parallel for whatever reason. And apparently there are a lot of good reasons um, whether or not you see those benefits outside of a project that uses th that, I, I, I have not been able to, to determine. Um, and, and this, if you'll remember, when we were talking about either Makefiles or GNU Make, I don't remember which one it was now, I said that apparently there is sometimes a difference between running Make and BSD Make or something like that, or, or Makefiles written for, for one and not the other, and that I, I, I wasn't sure what that difference was, and I'm still not exactly sure. There's a there's a fascinating th uh, thread from a 2008 mailing list entry to NetBSD about kind of exactly this, like PMake and just generally BSD Make, and how it differs from GNU and what what the different structures are for each um, s sort of. The, the setups, I mean, I keep, I don't know what to call it. Like, the, it's almost the infrastructure or the, the structure of a project, but but specifically about the way that it structures its make files. And I, I, I read the thread, and it's fascinating, but I, 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 without seeing it sort of side by side and understanding where one is failing, where one succeeds, it's a little bit difficult to picture, you know, in, in my head. So it's, I don't have a, a great explanation for the difference, except that sometimes GNU make files are written in such a way that, well, I think, I think generally GNU make files can probably be processed by BSD make. I could be wrong about that, and I haven't done extensive testing, so it's difficult. I, I did some random little tests here and there um, with pmake, uh, but I, I have definitely tested it the other way because I was running package source for a while and I kept forgetting to type bmake and would just type make and that would cause builds to fail and I would get very annoyed and generally I would suspect that it was something wrong with a make file or something and that was not true it was just that I was not typing in bmake and I was typing in make and apparently that has to do with the recursion or the lack of recursion in GNU make. And I don't know exactly. First of all, the thread that I was reading was two, from 2008, so a lot of the a lot of the differences explained might not even exist anymore. So I, I can't guarantee that the information that I read was correct. I mean, I'm sure it was probably correct at the time, but development has happened since 2008, so I don't know how much of it is still true. Point is that the BS. I mean, you can look at package PKG SRC package source. Uh, you can look at that. You can look at the tree and and look at any given any given package in there that you could install, and you'll you'll see the structure. You'll see all the different make files. I, I keep going back and forth on on whether or not we sort of ought to be aiming for a unified make system. Because on one hand, you you might think, well, we're we're all using make files, and yet we have different make commands required to process them. That seems a little bit a little bit wrong. But actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go towards sort of the 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 way I feel about shells on this one and that is you know it's it's all free and open source it's very difficult to find well it's not difficult but the the, the ones that are free and open source are are readily available at least in my world and so it doesn't feel like it would be that like it's that big of a deal to have two different makes or three different makes, f and and a different a couple of different ways of structuring your your compilation infrastructure, it just doesn't seem like a weakness. It actually seems like a good thing because certainly, as I've said before, Auto Tools makes it really easy to get a make file up and running. Relatively easy. CMake can make it relatively easy to to get that going, and that's nice. You know, you don't have to worry about other definitions of make files and that's rather refreshing is there a system to help you through the bsd make structure i don't know um i haven't looked into that so maybe there is maybe there's something equally as nice maybe there isn't maybe there that maybe that's a barrier to entry i i don't know but either way it's nice to have the choice of well i just want a quick make file to throw some stuff into a folder. I'll just use GNU make today. I have a big program 
being able to break out my make files into little bits and pieces or to resolve dependencies before continuing and so on. Maybe that's what I need. And so you have the BSD model for that. So on the one hand, while I thought to myself initially, this just doesn't seem like it warrants two or three or five implementations. On the other hand, because it's open source and easy to resolve either way, then it seems like it's actually a good thing. It's a feature, not not a bug. And that's where I stand on, on the whole make issue right now. I mean, heck, I can think of a couple of, not not a lot, but a couple of applications that I wouldn't mind breaking out, for instance, the man page process, the, just compiling or, or or um, assembling documentation. If that was a separate process that could run while the rest of the compiling is running, that would be fantastic. And you get that sort of thing with, for instance, or you get settings for that. For um, for that, and and it's included with PMake. If you do a, a less on slash user slash share slash mk slash bsd dot man dot mk, you see that there's um, there's stuff for processing man pages. If you look in the mk directory, there's a bunch of other stuff too. bsd info dot mk, bsd well sys dot mk, or I guess it's called bsd.sys.mk technically. bsdfiles.mk. This file can be included multiple times. It clears the definition of files at the end so that this is possible. So this is to uh, install specific files. It's basically a <laughs> director. It's a it's a file of, of nothing but variables. It is in, unintelligible. Um, but there you go. That's kind of that little infrastructure that I'm talking about. These little these little sort of partial make files that when treated as a larger system by, for instance, parallel make, it all can can happen at the same time potentially. Or, or in tandem, and potentially either compile your software faster or um, uh, just give you more flexibility in how you design that that compiling infrastructure. I find that talking about speed pretty much all the time is, is kind of difficult. It, it gets dicey because you start talking about, oh, this is so much faster than that, and then and then it comes into questions of, well, what are you compiling it with? What flags are you, dash J what? And well, would it be faster if it was if the, your make files were broken out into smaller entities, or or would that not matter? And and you get into a lot of sort of conditionals. So I wouldn't I don't think consider this sort of a speed boost or anything like that. I would consider it more like just different infrastructure for for a different way of structuring projects that need to get compiled in a predictable way. And I may as well mention, I mean, I've already mentioned it, but I might as well mention it again, pkgsrc.net. If you want to go see a really, really solid example of reliable and predictable structuring of software that you could um, install, Package Source has 17,800 packages, apparently. No, it says over 17,800 packages. I have run this before. I was relatively pleased with it. There, it, there's. If you want to run it for real, like as your as your source of software, there is some. There are choices that you have to make, and the choice that you have to make is how how you want package source to, or how much you want package source to know about your system, and and that's like I say, that's a choice that you have to make by default if you just put package source on a system that that hasn't planned on package source being there then really you're you're used you you're compiling software usually into user local tree and and so it doesn't necessarily know that you have i don't know perl installed already and so if you install something that requires perl then it's going to catch that as a dependency and it is going to install a new Perl version in your user local tree. So there is a flag that you can pass to tell package source don't use don't you know don't don't take your own dependency resolution for granted. Instead, use the use information about the system located here, and then you can get it to compile against stuff that already exists on your system. But the package source maintainers themselves kind of warn you against that because now you've got you know now you're using something that they have tested sort of in a self-contained environment they they are ha- able to to vouch for the versions of dependencies that they compiled the software against and you are throwing in different 
dependencies. Should that matter? I mean, ideally it wouldn't matter, but I mean, the reality of it is that sometimes that matters because software gets updated and then, or the dependencies get updated and then the software built on those dependencies are looking for something that doesn't exist anymore or, or a new version is looking for something that doesn't exist yet and so on. But PackageSource.net is a very cool example of, um, of, of a makefile infrastructure that is intricate, adm admittedly intricate. You really have to kind of look through it, and it will seem very foreign if you're used to sort of your standard GNU make project. It, it does look different, and you can get lost in all those make files, trust me. But um, that's part of it. That's part of the pmake or BSD make or bmake or whatever it's called. That's part of that world. And yes, it's different, but sometimes different is, is good. Okay, let's go take a coffee break. And after the coffee break, we'll talk about listener feedback and Perl and lots of other things. So in um, in episode something or another of this show, I talked about assembly with NASM. That was episode 427. And it turns out that Black Kernel in episode 3421 of Hacker Public Radio, so that's uh, hackerpublicradio.org slash eps.php question mark ID equals 3421. Black Kernel goes extensively into how circuit, uh, well, how circuits work, uh, but but specifically how circuits work in relation to computers, like CPU processes and stuff. And then he explains how that translates to, well, how that enables assembly language to function, and then how assembly language relates to C. It's a fascinating, fascinating talk. I highly recommend listening to this episode of Hacker Public Radio. He does, a, it, it just, it, it, it goes so far beyond what, you know, in, in episode 47, or 479 or whatever I just said it was um, when I was talking about assembly and NASM for, 427, sorry. Um, at that point, I was being very, I was just literally talking about NASM. I wasn't, I wasn't even attempting to explain why assembly worked because frankly, I didn't know. Now I do know because of episode 3421, so I, I highly recommend checking it out. All right, the next listener feedback is legitimate. It was actually written, uh, it, it, it was written to me, and this is from Dave Morris, who you may or may not know, also from Hacker Public Radio. It's, these are all weird coincidences that I'm referring to two Hacker Public Radio people all at the same time, but I mean, what can you do? I'm, I'm involved in Hacker Public Radio as much as I am with GNU World Order, so the, the worlds are going to collide frequently between those two. Okay, anyway, he says um, he says two things I was going to mention but didn't want to overcomplicate. Uh, no, th that's his response to me. Sorry, he says, I did things a little differently and commented on why in the script. I forgot to comment on using user bin onv space Perl. And onv, env, env, um, is a really handy little application uh, on your Linux machine, no matter what Linux you're running, env is is certainly there and it is a way for your linux machine to 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 understand what your environment uh prefers i guess is a, a good way to do it and a lot of people use this in the python world because uh that you know they don't want to necessarily predict or they did I, I feel like it became really popular with with like sort of common folk like me when Python switched from 2 to 3. Then you started hearing about ENV a lot because people realized, well, we can't just say user bin Python anymore because some people are going to be doing... This. On some people's systems, that's going to be Python 2. On other people's, it's going to be 3. What do we do? User bin ENV 
space Python, and it just tells it's it's asking the env command to resolve what Python or Perl where that's located on the system, and it lets env find it and run it. So that's what that's what that tip is. I knew better than to not use env in my sample application. I just forgot to to actually sort of do that. But I, I've used it before. I I I knew that that was a better idea. But anyway. Um, so that's what he's got at his first line in his in his script, in his version of the dice rolling Perl script. So the differences are not like really all that great. It's, he does something very elegant in how he processes the argument that you pass to the script. But otherwise it's not really like I was I was happy to see that I didn't get too much wrong, as it were. I mean it's not really wrong. And in fact he says as much. He says an alternative way of writing the script in GNU World Order episode 429. Not necessarily better, just different. Remember the Perl motto, T-M-T-O-W-T-D-I, which actually translates to or, or expands to there is more, no, there's more than one way to do it. There's even a Wikipedia article on that phrase. There's more than one way to do it. So that's the Perl motto. So he, he opens his script with use, uh, use warnings, use strict, we did that. Use UTF-8. He says this ensures that you can use Unicode in the script itself if you want. So that that's a good thing to remember. Bin mode standard out. Uh, encoding UTF-8, bin mode standard error encoding UTF-8. Use boilerplate that defines input and output to be uh, Unicode as well. So, I mean, this is huge. I don't know if you've ever had uh, scripts error out because someone uses a curly quote in, in some text that you're parsing and suddenly your, your your script just completely and utterly fails because it doesn't know what that character is. So using using Unicode in 2021 a good idea so that's probably a good boilerplate right there is the used warnings used strict used utf-8 bin mode standard out bin mode standard error encoding utf-8 okay and he says the way perl uses argv or i should say at argv is great and all and a bit like the argv of c but i prefer not to use it that way myself i just treat it as a stack and shift quote shift um stuff off of it this is consistent with the way modules like git opt colon colon long pick out options, maybe with their own arguments, from the command line parameters. Here I use the convention of shifting the top argument of the stack. If there isn't one, then dollar sign sides will be undefined. The die, um, and you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll get into what die is, it's not the dice. He says die is an exit with a message. Use a trailing quote backslash in close quote or it will add script location information i love unless because it's more like english than a programming language so here's here's what he's talking about he's got two lines my dollar sign sides equals shift semicolon so that's that's really cool um and we'll get into what that means in a moment and then die quote you must provide a number of sides for the dice close quote unless dollar sign sides semicolon we kind of talked about that trailing if statement last time and in this case in this statement you see a trailing unless statement and it's it's obviously there to catch an undefined dollar sign sides so now let's look at so we still don't know what shift is exactly but we'll we'll take it on we'll take it on faith that it makes sense actually we won't let's not do that let's actually just look it up and i'm going to type into a search engine pearl shift Maybe. Okay, here's a, a page on perldoc.perl.org slash functions slash shift. It says shift is an array. Shift does this. It shifts the first value of the array off and returns it, shortening the array by one and moving everything down. That's more or less it. So the idea is that you have an array. You have foo, bar, and baz in the array, let's say. That's a really simple array, but let's just say that that's what you've got. I mean, more, you know, quite quite possibly you might have, you know, dash c foo, dash a bar, and then maybe baz, but we'll we'll skip over that for now and just say the array is foo, bar, and baz. If you assign it to shift, if, if you say that my sides equals shift, then you're you're saying that my sides equals this array this shiftable uh, sh shift 
shiftable shiftable array of values and when you then call sides Perl knows to take the top value off of the array and to give it to the thing that you've called it with so my say my sides equals shift means whatever's next in line in the shift array assign it to sides and we can demonstrate that in a very real way by let's do um, s s s let's just call it foobar.pl how's that so we'll do hashbang slash user slash bin slash env Perl, having learned our lesson. And then and then we will uh, do my dollar sign sides equals shift semicolon. And then we'll do my dollar sign actually you know what we're gonna do is my my dollar sign var one equals shift, var two equals shift, my dollar sign var three equals shift. And then we'll do a print dollar sign var semicolon. And then I guess I'll do like a sort of a var1 is var1. Var2 is var2. And so on. So we're going to get a little report at the end of the end of our of running our program. Okay, so now I'm going to just launch a shell right here in Emacs, and I'm going to do Perl dot slash, what is it, uh, foobar dot pl, one, two, three. It says var1 is 1, var2 is 2, and var3 is 3. That's what I would have expected. If we do, um, how about if we just do Perl foobar dot pl, one, two. So we're, we're omitting the third variable. It says var1 is 1, var2 is 2, var3 is blank. What if we go really crazy here and do 2, 3, and 4? It says var1 is 1, var2 is 2, var3 is 3, and then 4 just gets eaten. It gets dropped. So you see how I did that. My var1 equals shift, my var2 equals shift, my var3 equals shift. You don't ever have to worry about what's in shift because you always know that Perl is just going to take the one off the top. The, the value off the top and hand it over to to the next one. So just in I don't I, I can't tell how clear this actually is, but what I am going to do is I'll do one more Perl dot slash foobar dot pl. I'll do three two and then one. Var one is three. Var two is two. Var three is one. So again, the the first one in line gets assigned to the first variable the first time you ever call shift. The, the, and, and then it gets eaten, it gets dropped from the array. Now, I was I was actually, I was using Perl on a script in real life for fun outside of the show a couple of weeks, or a week ago, I guess, or two weeks ago. And I could not, I didn't know about Shift yet. And I didn't know, so I, I had a, a loop. I'd written a loop where I would look at what was in um, at argv, and I would take the first value or the first two values, whatever I needed, and sh and and put it into a variable. And then I would call, and then I was calling some function to remove, you know, argv dot remove or something like that, or I think it was just remove, um, to to get rid of that, to get rid of the the thing out of the variable out of the array, and then and then loop back around and do it again and loop back around and do it again and it was it was a lot of work i mean it was something that i i just assumed like i couldn't i didn't know the other way to do it turns out shift exists makes it so much easier so in in dave's script all he's doing is saying my size equals shift now if you only have one value then that's the the array gets you know takes that value and puts it into sides and then the array is essentially gone we could call it gone if you had given it two values when you called this script, then it would still only take that first value because it's only getting called once. Okay, now, um, subroller is what he calls his subroutine. And he says, um, curly brace, my parentheses dollar sign sides close parentheses equals at underscore semicolon. He says there's nothing wrong with indexing at underscore like in the original. I prefer to use it as a stack and shift stuff off of it, which I put into variables. It makes it easier to see what the subroutine arguments are at a glance, though I usually write lots of comments. I'm told it's bad form to name variables in the subroutine scope the same as global ones, but it's a habit I've gotten into. Yeah, so he's not using local, not, not using local variables. Um, but, I mean, technically it shouldn't matter, right? I mean, if the scoping is correct, it shouldn't really matter. You should be able to just reuse variable names. 
So I, I'm not really sure. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of calling the bluff on the programming language. You know, you're telling me you're scoping this and that the, the contents of this function, the subroutine, are private unless unless passed out of this function to something else. So I'll just reuse all my variable names. Um, anyway, my dollar sign role equals int parentheses rand parentheses dollar sign si sides close parentheses close parentheses semicolon print dollar sign role plus one comma quote backslash n close quote semicolon close semi uh, uh, curly brace. So that's, I mean, it, yes, it's different, but at the same time, it's not entirely different. Like, it's it's essentially the same process. And then uh, at the as the, the final line is roller parentheses dollar sign sides close parentheses semicolon. So that call, calls the subroutine. That's it. That's It's as easy as that. Um, so it's really nice to see what someone who's very experienced with Perl would do. And it's kind of heartening to see or comforting to see that I wasn't completely off base, you know, it wasn't it wasn't embarrassingly incorrect, or it didn't it didn't do anything completely unpearl alike. Um, mine mine is relatively close to to that. My, mine is a little bit more complex in some areas, less I guess complex arguably in others, by indexing the um, at underscore. I guess it's kind of kind of less but um his is, is quite nice I, I quite enjoyed it so thanks dave for the good example last but not least hacker defo contacted me over mastodon and has linked me to a really really handy udev rule file i've talked about udev a little bit on this show in the far far past i've said that i don't love dealing with udev all the time it can be very sticky there are lots of the the, the the syntax is quite strange and and you have to do a lot of monitoring to figure out sort of what kind of events are actually being triggered by you know plugging something in and unplugging it and so on you have to know which event you're looking for and so on but this is a i mean this is not a short udev file this is um, apparently it's from the developers like uh, the rule these rules refer developer.android.com slash studio slash run slash device.html uh, and include many suggestions from Arch Linux, GitHub, and other communities. Latest version can be found github.com slash mor no m0rf30 slash android dash udev dash rules. So it is not a small file. There are lots of things going on in this file, and that is partly because it is accounting for lots of different models of phones. So you know, you might go look at this UDEV file and your phone may not be listed here, so you might have to do some UDEV ADM, ADM monitoring yourself to discover, you know, what kind of device, how your device is detected and so on. But either way, this is a great example, if nothing else, of a UDEV rule that apparently will detect your your Android phone in all the different forms that a uh, that a an Android a mobile device might need to be um, detected. Now, of course, in theory, you can do UDEV ADM control dash dash reload. I don't trust that. I always do a reboot. If you really want to test your UDEV rules, just do a reboot. You shouldn't have to. It, it's I know you don't want to, but honestly, just do it. It's easier that way. Uh, and then there is yet another one called um, Android File Transfer for Linux. And this is not a UDEV rule. This is a, an application. Uh, and it's uh, supposed to be a reliable MTP client with minimal UI, uh, similar to Android File Transfer, transfer for Mac. I, I don't know what that is, um, but I'm assuming that this application is is that for Linux, I guess. I, I feel, and FreeBSD, it says. Um, I, I feel like this is one of those things where just, I, I don't want to need this kind of thing. This is not really what I want. What I really want is for the phone to plug in as an external storage device and to just leave me alone. But I guess that's not that's not in the near future, apparently. Well, I mean, I guess it would be sort of for the UDEV rule. Should should just work, right? So I don't know. I'm going to try the UDEV rule. I'm going to see how it works for me. If that doesn't work, I might try this other one. We'll see. The, the point is that there are new options, and that's always exciting because you just never know what you're going to really, really latch on to. I'll try that. I'll go off and try that at some point and get back to you about how it works. Or if you try it, you certainly could try it and email me about your results. It'll be interesting data. And I think that's everything I have for this week. Thank you very much for listening. 
I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open thing is we believed what we saw and it frightened the living places out of us.